So first of all, just a practical piece. If at any time you cannot hear us, our voices drop or fade, please do you know, wave furiously. So yesterday we spent a good deal of time speaking about sati, about mindfulness. And bearing in mind that mindfulness is an enabling factor of these other limbs of awakening. So it's in a dialogue all the time with the other factors of awakening. They're cultivated within the climate of mindfulness. So we're not, when we talk about, now we start to t today to talk about another factor, we're not looking at this in isolation. It's continually supported by wise mindfulness. So today we, we want to move on and, and speak about what is called Dhamma Vichaya. Now John later on this morning is very much going to go into this word Dhamma because again it's one of these words that in English it's hard to find one word that describes what it means. But investigation of states, it's how it's usually translated. Now, I want to just begin by reminding you of something that we said yesterday, that, you know, all those years ago, when the people went to the Buddha distressed with many of the same questions and challenges that we face in our own lives about death, about psychological and emotional conflict about living together with others harmoniously, about finding inner calm and peace, the Buddha's answer rarely was to say, just sit more. Hmm? Mostly his answer was to say, to investigate. To investigate. So, Bearing in mind, when we speak about investigation, we're really, the investigation is in the service of something. It has a purpose. It's not just to produce more thinking. It is actually to cultivate insight. It's to cultivate understanding, to find the ways to answer these rather timeless questions and dilemmas. And very often, you know, part of that formulation of that investigation, you know, comes down often to a very, very kind of essential level of what is suffering, what causes suffering, and what is the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. And investigation is in the service of that path of, of liberating the moment of liberating the moment, liberating the heart, liberating the mind from confusion and distortion. So this factor of awakening, the investigation of the dhammas, again, it's not just about thinking. Although the reflective element can very much play a part in this investigation, but a wise reflection. But I think it is really, in my understanding, it's taking mindfulness another step. It's not just about seeing our experience, but seeing into the nature of our experience, understanding our experience. 
So it's almost the insight factor of mindfulness and liberation that's being cultivated. Now, investigation of states, in my experience, has, has a, a few different dimensions, and John will continue with many of those dimensions. But I'd like to point out that one of the dimensions of investigation of states, it's a very strange phrase, so you have to kind of work with its awkwardness. But one of the limbs of that investigation is very much experiential. You know, and although we don't always frame it in that way, formal meditation is an experiential investigation. That's what it's meant to be. It's not just about being more intimate with a crazy mind or you know, an aching back or a sore knee. It's about understanding what is actually going on in that experience. Now, so experiential investigation is very much rooted in this connection with our mind-body experience. How we experience that, how we understand that, what is actually occurring within that. But it's more than just looking at it. The experiential investigation is also, in a lot of ways, going beyond the parameters or the boundaries of the familiar. You know, if you sit and your knee is aching, you know, rather than following that, you know, kind of impulsive reactive pathway of immediately I'm, I'm out of here, you know, I'm running out of the meditation hall screaming, you know, we actually see what it's like to actually sit for another moment or two. So we're actually going into that territory of what is unfamiliar, what is slightly unknown. If we sit or walk and we see the mind about to fall into one of those familiar loops of judgment or blame, we might actually experiment with bringing some kindness or mindfulness or exploration to that moment. So we're actually stretching the parameters of what we know in that very experiential way. And part of that is, of course, undoing what we were talking yest about yesterday, this kind of distorted or skewed perceptions. You know, and sometimes those distorted or skewed perceptions, you know, are saying, you know, I'm a disaster, you know, this is impossible, you know, I'm a failure, this is unworkable. So we're actually going back past that kind of skewed perception to reconnect with what is and to investigate it, to go beyond that familiar boundary. You know, you have a mental state of boredom. You see the impulse to head, you know, hit the tea urn. What's it like to walk with boredom? What's it like to sit with that experience of boredom? It's just taking that, that extra step to understand rather than to react, react. And all of that is experiential investigation. Do you want to add anything to that, Pete? I think the only thing I would want to add to that at this stage is that the whole investigation is an investigation of our materiality mentality. That is what we're actually investigating. This is, if you like, the, the total world of Vipassana meditation of actually beginning to investigate your physical and mental states, whatever is occurring, not what you'd like to occur, but what is actually occurring from the boredom 
and the pain to the joys and whatever is going on, that is the, that is the sphere of our investigation. So it's always, and I you know, would re-echo what Christina said, it's always tied to the practical, no matter how seemingly sometimes esoteric it slightly gets in some of the texts, but it's always tied to that practical investigation of our material, physical uh, states and our mental states, the what is going on. The Buddha's big question, I'll say this something when I come to my bit to, to talk and investigate things with yours, you, is that his big question really is how are things? How do they arise? You know, not what are they? And I'll leave that hanging in your mind for a second and I'll come back to that. <laughs> so it's also acknowledging that this experiential investigation we undertake is an informed investigation. It is happening within a certain context. So in many ways, an informed investigation is changing the lens through how we perceive and see and experience. So I'll explain that. So the investigation, the experiential investigation, in this context that we're talking about, it is very much linked um, to the teachings of liberation. So it's kind of, not, again, not attitudinally neutral. It, it's, it's not passive. It is directly linked to what we talked about yesterday, about hearing the teaching. How do we embody this? How do we apply this to our own experience? How do we a, a, approach our experience through the lens of what we have heard and integrated and naturalized, even if it just feels like it's on a conceptual level? We're taking a shift. So instead of, you know, approaching that state of boredom through the lens of, well, you know, life should just be more exciting and I'll go and find some more exciting excitement, we're shifting that lens into what is boredom? How does it fit in to the teachings of liberation? Now, the lens through actually we're investigating as we explore this more deeply is Part of it is the lens of understanding the three characteristics. And some of you, many of you will be very familiar with that teaching. The teaching of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the teaching of impermanence, of change, and the teaching of anatta, of non-self or not-self. So we're actually starting to approach our moment-to-moment -moment experience and start to look at it through those lens. Now let's look a little bit at the first one, anicca, impermanence, and all its implications. <laughs> Not just the fact of impermanence, but the implications of impermanence in our own lives. Now, we only need to spend a little bit of time in formal practice to really begin to notice in a very acute way the ever-changing nature of our experience. Things don't stand still for us. Nothing. Not in the body, not in the mind, not in the sense impressions, not in the emotions, not in the ideas. Nothing in the world stands still for us. 
Now, sometimes we welcome this, of course. You know, difficult mental state, pain, sitting in the dentist's chair. You know, we are so happy about Anicca. Very often we don't welcome it. Things don't last as long as we would like them to last. People leave us. We experience loss. The happy meditation experience changes into the unhappy meditation experience. Health turns to illness. Nothing stands still for us. Now, we all, of course, nod very sagely around the fact of impermanence. You know? We don't argue, we don't disagree. It is something of another order to consider the implications of impermanence. And it essentially, you know, that other order essentially means that everything that we encounter in this life, internally, externally, again is coming to us with a message written upon it which says, don't cling. Don't grasp. Because you can see that the distortion around Anicca is a very direct cause of suffering in our lives. The resistance to the reality or the denial of the reality is a very direct cause of suffering and pain and struggle in our lives. And the endless endeavors to try and make things stand still. How do we do that? By trying to cling or grasp more tenaciously. By formulating views. It's a difficult dilemma for us. And Nietzsche has, it looks like bad news sometimes. But we also actually need to consider the liberating implications of Anicca. They are truly liberating because it's not meant to be bad news. It is meant to be a reality when understood and embraced, allows us to live a life truly aligned with the way things actually are, rather than against the way things actually are. So we really need to consider the liberating aspects of aligning our hearts, our minds, our lives with the reality that we do accept is a reality. It means not building edifices, inwardly or outwardly. The I am, the you are. Not building edifices out of our cravings. I need, I must have. Not building edifices out of our aversions. I can't bear, I hate, I can't be with. It means not building edifices anywhere on the shifting sands of a Nietzsche impermanence. Now this cultivation, this investigation of a Nietzsche is something that happens sometimes we just bump into it. And sometimes we more intentionally and consciously bring that investigation into the midst of all the places where we're suffering. Because we're pretty sure that if we're really caught in some contractedness, some suffering, that we're missing something in this piece. We're actually missing something in this piece. And often what we're missing is is the, the tenaciousness and the intensity of grasping or clinging within the tides of change. 
So that is what we're intending to liberate. And, you know, as, as the Buddha said, you know, this insight into impermanence, he said, it is like the most powerful of all insights, the most powerful of all understandings, and powerful in its capacity to liberate the moment. To liberate the moment. Can I say something here, Christina? Yeah, please. I think that um, the teaching of impermanence is the very center of what the Buddha is teaching when you look at the text. Towards the end of his life, um, in fact, the last so-called recorded words of the Buddha um, are exactly about that. They're about impermanence. They're not about anything else. He doesn't go off into a huge um, talk or dispensation about the complexities of everything else. His final so-called recorded words in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and I'll give it to you in 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 the way it's usually um, translated, which is, all compounding things are impermanent, strive on diligently. Really what that's saying is, everything, absolutely everything is impermanent, get on with it. <laughs> you know, it's, as, it's as almost as stark as that. This is the very, very center. But I think, joking aside, there's, there's something about this, and there's a question for us all, is do we have the courage to actually face that that is the case? that there is impermanence, and it's written into the warp and woof of every dimension of our experience, that there is absolutely nothing, literally nothing, and that's a word or phrase that you'll find echoing out through the history of Buddhism, nothingness, you know, which is really about the implications of emptiness. You know, emptiness, nothingness, these are the words which are used to actually expose the fact there is no certainty. There is nothing which is unchanging. It's not as if there is exemptions. You know, <laughs> there's a few exemptions, and of course the one we'll come to is everything is impermanent, but a little voice inside goes, not me. They're empty, ultimately. That's really what it's indicating. There's some it's okay. Question. Yeah, um, it's often found in the text as a statement that all concepts are empty. This is one of the statements that you'll find. Um, and the question really was, if if that is the case, well, isn't or uh, all these concepts are impermanent? If that is the case, aren't concepts like Anicca itself? Anatta, impermanence, um, Nibbana, aren't these all impermanent as well? And really I was echoing and saying, well, yes, that is the case, because, for example, in later Buddhist thought, as you come out into the growth of the Mahayana, it's exactly the implications that's taken, that all of these things, all of these words, all of these concepts, the ways that we try to pin down reality, all in themselves are actually empty. They're empty of any intrinsic existence. So we can't kind of look for a thing called Nibbana. Nibbana is an experience. We can't look for a thing which is Anatta. It's an experience. It's the way things are. The concept is merely a finger pointing at the moon. That is all it is. 
And, and I would echo that, that the concept, you know, Nietzsche, Dukhanato, the three characteristics which has given so much emphasis, I think we need to hold them in the light of being skillful means. Yeah. Hmm? They're like doorways to investigation, to starting to unpack a, a kind of a life or an experience of life which often feels so mysterious or impenetrable or dense. So they're, they're opening the door to that unpacking of that density. But they are skillful means, again, not to be clung to as edifices, you know, or as mottos or, you know, anything of that nature. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I'm the job of the scribe. He's the holder of the pen. I'm the keeper of the pen. The keeper of the pen. I'm not, I, I don't have a pen. <laughs> but we will leave it on the board, so you're free to come up and, you know, look at it at some point if you can. It's big. Is that big enough? Yeah. Can you see that? Okay. Duka. Okay, Duka. <laughs> Yes. Okay, the question is about how grieving relates to impermanence. And I think it's a very important question, you know, because people have the idea that if you're a good Buddhist, you don't grieve because you understand impermanence. It's not so. The, the, I mean, if, if you didn't care for anybody at all in this life, you wouldn't grieve. So again, grieving is a part, simply part of loving. It is natural, it is human, we experience loss, it's sad, and we also hold it in that light of understanding, yes, it is also, loss is also natural. Death is also natural, just as grief is natural. Yes, I would want to add, it's not the grieving that's the problem, it's the clinging to the grief that becomes the problem. Uh, and there are many, many psychological reasons for clinging to grief. I mean, you can think about them, for example, if I don't continue to grieve, then I didn't really care. Uh, the grieving can become a substitute for the person who you've lost. The grieving can be about self. You know, these are just you know, the ones that are obvious, I think, to us. Um, so it's not the grieving that's the problem, it's how we deal with the grief. It's like how we deal with any psychological state that arises. Anger isn't a problem, just as grief isn't a problem. You know, these are, you know, we spoke about this a little bit yesterday, these are natural outrisings, often in relationship, for example, to situations of injustice where anger might arise. To the loss of an individual, somebody loved and deeply cared for, when you lose them, well, grief is a natural outpouring. It's a natural state of mind arising. But what happens thereafter? That becomes the question. Do we continue to cling to it? Yeah. And this is a great dilemma of our lives, isn't it? How do, we, how do we love? How do we make those commitments to another person or even to the practice? You know, How do we cultivate that, that, those those enlivening human lovely qualities and yet allow them to sit side by side with the reality of a Nietzsche. Mm. 
And this is the great dilemma, the, one of the great you know, dilemmas, the questions, the invitations of living a life wholeheartedly because you can see the extremes that we can go to. We can be afraid, so afraid of loss that we'll never care for anyone. This is, is not a life well lived. You know, we can be so afraid of failure that we never dedicate ourselves to anything. This again is not a life well lived. And it's, it's, the, it's the holding of those two, you know, in both hands, side by side, that is the, is the invitation, the dilemma of our lives. And I think that uh, one of the things that I think we always ought to be wary of is the idea of the detachment is somehow taking us outside of life, somehow putting us on the periphery of the real emotions that we experience if we are it's sort of in the midst of it. Well, really what we're talking about is moving into the heart of life with correct engagement. This is it. You know, the other way is a cop-out, actually. The detachment, this false detachment, as I call it, the moving onto the peripheries, looking as like a bystander gazing in. You know, I think in one of James Joyce's novels is calling it an outcast from life's feast. You, know, you stand on the peripheries and you look into what's actually going on. Well, that's not what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about moving into the midst of life with all of its difficulties and particularly all of its impermanence, taking that on board, you know, really, really beginning to understand and comprehend and not becoming emotionally dead to it, but also not clinging to the emotions that arise because seeing them with understanding and seeing them with wisdom, knowing that they are a natural arising and they will naturally pass away if let pass away. I like it when Rev. Anderson put it, he said the Buddha didn't sit in the suburbs of suffering. He sat downtown. And it's hot downtown and intense downtown. But that's where life, you know, the reality of life is. Well, you have to keep investigating. It doesn't, oh, sorry, oh, sorry I'm sorry again. Um, the question was raised about, you know, like having a much-loved aging dog who is dying, seeing the suffering of that, having gone through a separation, an ex-partner suffering through the separation. You know, how to, how to investigate that, how to hold that, because it feels like suffering. Now, again, we're going back a little bit to what we talked about yesterday, about the two darts, you know, because, you know, loss is sad. You know, separation is sad. It would be odd if it was different. It is sad. Now, at what point does sadness become suffering or struggle? And I'm almost tempted to use the word struggle here rather than suffering. At what point does sadness become 
struggle. And it is very often when we're moving into the second dart, you know, this shouldn't be happening, it should be different, I should be able to make it different, I should be able to ease the suffering of another. That's a difficult one because we long to ease the suffering of another and it is very hard to, rem to acknowledge the limits of our power to do so. And, you know, we will actually get onto this a little bit. But so it, it is really being aware of, you know, how, you know, if you look even at Brahma-Vihara practices, you know, when we say, you know, may you be happy, you know, may you be free from pain, may you be free from suffering. On one level, that is our deepest longing, that another person, another being, or ourselves would be free from pain or suffering. And another level, we're holding that alongside the reality that it's just not always possible for that to be so. That doesn't deny the longing. It doesn't deny putting our heart into that aspiration and doing all that we can to ease suffering. But it is acknowledging that there are limits to our power, our capacity to relieve the suffering of another. And there's somewhere here where we're asked not to turn away from suffering because there is suffering actually that is part of the fabric of life you know that's not optional and how not to not to turn away from that and yet how not to add struggle to the mix and how actually i think as well i just like to add to that that's when we begin to turn with wise attention towards it i don't mean the kind of unwise attention that we can bring to it the resistance to what is actually happening. But when we start to investigate it with wise attention, then we start to develop something actually I don't think is spoke about often in Buddhist circles, but it's there again at the heart of a lot of the teaching, which is a fearlessness towards it. Because often it's fear, the fear of the loss, the fear of the what is happening in these situations, the powerless and the impotence uh, to change things. Um, and I think what happens, what, what arises out of that investigation when we do it you know, wholeheartedly, when we turn ourselves towards it rather than away from it, trying to avert our gaze, then we begin to develop that fearlessness. But it's progressive. It takes a lot of time to do it. Back this again, then. <laughs> well, we'll just about, we'll shortly get on to that yeah. in just a minute. <laughs> that will come yeah. up later, yeah. Can I just say something first of all? Because I, th I think, yes, it, it's part of, you know, when, for example, in the commentaries you find this um, whole thing of Dhammavachaya, of investigation of states being examined, and the first thing is examination of the Buddha's teaching. That's the first thing. You investigate the Buddha's teaching, and one of the chief things you investigate in your experience, not intellectually, 
investigate in your experience is dependent origination. That is the core of the Buddha's teaching. It really is the core. The three characteristics, in a sense, are central, but they arise out of an understanding of dependent origination. However, because it's so difficult to get into examining dependent origination in our experience, then let's look at the three characteristics, because they're arising again and again and again. So the Buddha often takes the easy way, and he eases you into the investigation. Okay, just to explain, because we're using the term dependent origination, which is a whole nother week-long course. <laughs> week-long? At least. We, we've endeavored to do it in a week. But it's a very central part of the Buddhist teaching, where it, you've sometimes come across it as the wheel of life. But, it's, it, but it really describes the way that our, our world is being formed and constructed moment to moment. You know, and especially the way that that world is formed and constructed through the lens of distortion or confusion that leads us into these places of I am, you are, the world is. So dependent origination is actually just a breakdown of that constructing process to really look. Because again, the more we understand about how things are constructed, the more choices do we have about following a different pathway. Sylvia, something to add. You used the phrase that the three characteristics are doorways. Um, could you expand on that a little? Because that is a whole different flavor for the words than they are sort of set. Things. Things, mm. right. So doorways to what and how should they be used as doorways? Um, the question is about the phrase I use, that the three characteristics are doorways to insight. They are doorways to stepping out of the realm of struggle, to understanding the nature of the struggle. They are doorways to, uh, that are showing us a way to align ourselves with the way things actually are, rather than how we think they are. And the reason why they are very accessible doorways is because, you know, you don't have to be a scholar, you don't have to be a Buddha, all you need to have is a mind and a body and look at that for a little bit, and you're going to understand the three characteristics increasingly. And they're very much there to weaken, weaken some of the hindrance states. You know, for example, the contemplation of impermanence is really there to weaken Craving and aversion, because craving and aversion, if we think about it, doesn't make any sense in the light of impermanence. You know, it simply doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like self-view doesn't make any sense in the light of understanding anatta. You know, so it is really their, their doorways to weakening the factors that create suffering so they are doorways to actually out of struggle and suffering. No, I, I would just totally concur with that. I think that they are ways of beginning to liberate ourselves from very entrenched attitudes towards life. We begin to move apart or move ourselves away from these deeply held attitudes, for example, and they are very, very intractable, and we're almost incorrigible, for example, in looking for permanence, 
so much so that we get it down onto the infinitesimal level. You know, that the permanence might, might be not a gross permanence, but something has got to be real within experience. Something is not going to change within it. And the constant reiteration, constant investigation of things like this start to weaken that temptation to constantly want to grasp after something. Because ultimately, the understanding is there is no thing to grasp after in the end. doesn't mean there's nothing. There's no thing to grasp after. We need to move on fairly, you know, we're a little time for yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So the question is the distinction between struggle and suffering. They are distinct. Sometimes there's nothing we can do about the pain that arises because of conditions in this life. But how we engage with it is very much within the realm of how we understand those conditions, which includes meaning they're not in our control, they do change, they are not necessarily personal. Can we move on a little bit because we are absolutely not, uh, absolutely going to run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point in the, any course I start to panic and think, are we <laughs> going to get through all this material? <laughs> so, <laughs> I want to continue on this theme of doorways because a Nietzsche, the understanding, the embracing of a Nietzsche is actually another doorway to understanding and embracing dukkha. Because if we can really see experientially the impossibility of pinning anything down in this life, the, um, the folly of trying to make things stand still, the folly of grasping, then we're actually coming across that this word dukkha again is a word so difficult to translate because again it's often translated as suffering. But you know, there's other dimensions to dukkha, which is about instability, unsatisfactoriness, shaky ground. But what we do really see through the lens of impermanence is that there really isn't any lasting refuge in all that is transient and unreliable, born of conditions, subject to conditions that it is unsatisfactory, not because it's bad or wrong. Hmm? Don't use that kind of slant on unsatisfactoriness. It's unsatisfactory because it cannot offer what we are looking to the world or states to offer, or people. We keep looking to things to find this kind of solid ground, this lack of transience, this sense of refuge, this sense of permanence. We start to see, actually, it is everything that is born of conditions, subject to conditions, simply cannot provide that which we so often, that so often drives our lives. How do I find something that is a refuge, that can be lent on, that can be depended upon, that is reliable, that is certain? And so it is an antidote 
you know, this understanding of unsatisfactoriness, the shifting ground, the conditioned nature of all experience, all phenomena, it's an antidote to the word I like to use is enchantment. So it's an antidote to this ongoing, you know, because when we're really looking at the world, people, things, to provide us with what we feel we can't provide for ourselves, we keep projecting into people, into situations, into achievements, into things, the intrinsic capacity to provide us with safety, security, happiness, peace, fulfillment, the list is very long. That's how I'm using the word enchantment. It's like living in a dream. You know, if I just get this, I'd be really happy. You know, if I was just with you, then I'd be really content forever. If I could just have this experience, you know, then I'd be a Buddha. You know, it just goes on and on, this kind of investment and enchantment, which is actually really taking us away from the way things are. And it's actually that, that externalization of happiness and sorrow is actually also taking us away from the capacity to find within our own hearts and our own minds the, the peace, the fulfillment, the liberation that is perhaps a little more reliable. Uh, the question around the word happiness, which again I try to use in a slightly measured way because, you know, as human beings, of course, we long to be happy. We all wish to be happy, you know, more than anything else. We, we wish people we loved are happy. You know, we all want a happiness. It's also true, you know, and I, the reason that I use the word happiness as a measured way because it's often used as an opposite to sadness or sorrow. And, you know, my own sense is as human beings, we have a spectrum of emotions because if we're responsive, you know, conditions change and not everything is happy. You know, the, as human beings, there is sadness. There's happiness, there's sadness. There's a whole range of spectrums. And I think when we use the word happiness in this teaching, we're trying to use it actually in a very much more specific way which is not the opposite of something else, you know, which doesn't mean the absence of a difficult or a more sad emotion. So the way that we're using the word happiness is not in terms of elation or euphoria or excitement. It is more that very deep, deep abiding. I mean, it's hard to find the right word because words have associations. The deep abiding freedom of heart that is with things the way they are and at peace. At peace in a state of non-contention. But that kind of happiness also has these other elements of, you know, a deeper, you know, because what we're seeking for in this teaching, this practice in our lives is I would almost use the word richness. You know, the sensitivity, the appreciation, the joy, the connectedness, the the, the sense of enough in every moment, like this moment is really enough, just how it is. 
So again, it's, it's very difficult in our language because of the associations with words to find, and do you have the right word? <laughs> well, I can go back to the text when the Buddha says happiness is uh, the greatest, uh, yeah, hap what we mean by happiness is contentment. But and not bovine. Not that's right. Yes. Know, yeah, definitely not bovine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a contentment with the way things are in all of its richness, and all of its diversity, and all of its change, in all of its vicissitudes. Everything that we come across, this is a contentment. Yeah, so it's not a, an empty contentment. So the, the shift in understanding of, of acknowledging impermanence and unsatisfactoriness is shifting from this externalization, you know, where I, my whole well-being is dependent on getting, getting rid of, achieving, becoming, all the rest of it. It's shifting away from that whole world of externalization, which runs on the gas of craving and aversion and delusion. And it's shifting that positioning almost into actually how am I free? How, what is the, the freedom of this moment? What is the freedom of this moment? When, and to find the refuge within that. Anyway, we, we might, should we just move along here? <laughs> <laughs> but this understanding of unsatisfactoriness, which is really an, an understanding of the changing tapestry of conditions that runs through all experience. You know, it's like when it is cold outside, that is born of this, you know, combination of conditions. The sun is shining, it's a different combination of conditions. We are seeing that in all of our own inner states, emotional, psychological, and physical, that the shifting of conditions creates a state of the moment. Now, that understanding of conditions, which is related to the investigation, because that's what we're investigating, is another doorway into understanding anatta. Now, I'm of, I like the way the three characteristics are often listed in this kind of order, you know, anicca, dukkha, anatta, because we start with what's a little bit easier. It's not easy, but anicca, you know, we can get, you know. It's, it's, we don't argue. You know, unsatisfactoriness is a little bit harder to get, but eventually, you know, the endless series and streams of life disappointments where we've projected promise onto things and it doesn't work out, we start to get unsatisfactoriness. Then we come to this one which often vexes us so much about anatta. And again, as John and I will say endlessly, it is not about no self. Please put that one out of your mind. It is not about no self. It is about not self or non self, a completely different domain of understanding. No self is what, you know, historically was done in various Asian cultures. You know, we stamp out the self, you know, we annihilate the self. Now, we tend to make this more complex than it actually is. It's actually really, really simple and apparent and obvious in all things, not self. Its implications are a little bit bigger, but um, it means that there is no abiding self-existence in anything. 
no abiding self-existence. Now the reason we struggle with it very much is because we have a very felt sense of self. It's not a problem, you know. I did get up this morning, I did eat breakfast. It wasn't that Juan got up this morning and ate breakfast. Or it wasn't that Cindy got up this morning and ate breakfast. I got up this morning and ate breakfast, you know, and got on with the day. There's no problem in this whatsoever. The problem is when we start to try again and make an edifice out of this idea of self, create a structure, give it continuity, give it authority, give it clinging, then we've got a problem, don't we? So often, and it's interesting how in Buddhist teaching, you know, in, in many of the discourses, the Buddha asks us to actually start to investigate this, this understanding of not-self through external investigations. You know, use the metaphor, you know, take the chariot, you know, and you start to take apart the chariot. Is the wheel the chariot? No. You know, is the chassis the chariot? No. You know, is the spoke the chariot? No. But you put all these things together, you've got the chariot. Very helpful. We know it's a chariot. Hmm? You, you, you look at the, the chair, it's very helpful, we know it's a chair. But you take, start to investigate the chair, actually you see the chair is made of the wood, involve people making it, involve trees growing, involved upholsters, so there's a whole set of conditions to come to make, get it, make this very practical thing called chair. Now, we tend to, we can, it's good to do that external investigation because it gives us a sense of just how Conditions come together in particular shapes and forms. I have a particular name. Very useful, helps us to find our way through this life. But would we say this chair has an abiding self-existence? Independent? No. None of us would say that. We would know this chair is subject to a Nietzsche. We know that it's born of conditions. You know, if, if there was a fire, the chair would burn. It would change into something else. Now, let's look at that internally. Now, we have a name, we have a form, we have a direction in this life. But really, please, sometimes I think really to understand not self, you need to investigate self. You need to investigate the idea of self. And, you know, just do that for one day. Anybody got an abiding, independent self-existence? You know, did you get up this morning and decide, I'm going to be really happy today, uninterrupted happiness, nothing else is going to happen. Did it happen? No. And anybody get up this morning and say, I'm going to be really depressed today, you know, and that's the way it's going to be? No. States come and go, born of conditions, born of change, coming together in different shapes. I feel well, I feel unwell. Another moment will be different. Study the self from the moment you get up in the morning. And what you see, you're just you're studying an idea of self. You're studying the thought of self. And also, just to add to that, when you wake up in the morning, which self do you want? You know, you choose. You, know, you can either have that happy self that looks out at a sunny day, or you can have the unhappy self that looks out at a cloudy, rainy day. You know? Um, you know, you choose what self you have, in many senses. And that self comes with mood. And it's concretized around mood. And how the idea <coughs> of self of the moment is essentially the child of clinging, of what is clung to in that moment. That's what the idea of self is. If I cling to a mood of sadness, I'm sad. If I cling to a moment, mood of excitement, I'm excited. If I cling, if there's cling, and don't even put it I cling, OK? 
because I'm not doing it. Huh? It is a deeply entrenched habit rooted in distortion. I'm not doing it. But I'm also not doing the letting go, but the letting go of the idea of self really occurs through everything we do here. The stillness, the calmness, the investigation, the understanding, to see that self, the idea of self too, is not exempt from anicca, not exempt from, from dukkha. But it is really seeing that the idea is a child of the clinging of the moment. And what are we doing in the practice? We are loosening the glue of distortion. And one of the manifestations of distortion or vidya or ignorance or confusion, whatever we call it, is this endless endeavor to try and concretize the moment, including me. Okay, I want to pick up on, on this because, <clears throat> as Christina said, it's very important to hear it not as no-self, but rather as not-self. What is not-self? There's an awful lot hangs on that little consonant in English, the not as opposed to the no. Um, in fact, you can get it very clearly if you look at the first sutta in the long discourses of the Buddha. The Buddha will delineate 62 different philosophies which were around at his time. When I say philosophies, but these are spiritual practices uh, that are there. Most of them fall into the idea there is a permanent fixed self of some sort. But then there are others... Um, which go the opposite direction, which say there is no fixed self. There is, you know, whatever we call self is just a material product. That is all it is. And <clears throat> particularly in relationship to traditional understanding, that that self will be destroyed at death. That self will go. Now, the Buddha basically characterizes all of these as wrong view. All of these are wrong view. They do not take the middle way between the extremes of eternalism and nihilism. And because we are almost, I think, you know, sort of, we think in a particular way, we have this law of excluded middle, something, you know, if I say something is, the denial of it is the is not. And that comes about through a particular way of thinking. And many of you will have heard me say this in this room, but I'm going to say it again anyway which is the Buddha has a particular way of asking a question about anything to do with this, and it's very practical, so don't hear this as intellectual at all. This very practical way of asking a question is he's always asking, how does something come about? How does it arise? How is it? That's the way the Buddha asks a question. He never asks a what is question. What is something? What is nearly always gives us a thing. It gives us an essence of some sort. Classically, in the history of thinking, you have this, and I'd only say this very briefly, you have this with Socrates in ancient Greece, going through ancient Greece, saying, what is goodness? You know, what is justice? And he's always going way disappointed because nobody can tell him um, what these things are. All they've given him is examples. You know, so the lawyer says, well, this is justice and this is justice. And he says, all you've done is given me examples. You haven't told me what justice is. In other words, the thing that is common to all forms of justice that makes it justice. The essence of justice and the essence of goodness. And he goes around doing this to all the professionals in, in Athenian society and eventually gets himself executed for, for the pains of it. <laughs> you know, um, not a wise idea in ancient Greece. Um, but the, the Buddha doesn't ask questions in that way. He's not looking for an essence of something. He's looking for how 
this thing that we label as self operates. That is what he's doing. He wants to know how he's operating. He's not saying there is no self, and I joke about this often and say, you know, when we hear the phrase no self, well, it suddenly appears like there's a self-shaped hole where there used to be a self, you know. And that's not the case. It leaves you completely intact. What the whole point about this particular teaching, this investigation, let's stay with the word investigation, vichaya, this investigation is meant to prompt is to how this phenomena that we cling to so desperately and inveigles us in greed, aversion, and delusion. And in fact, the delusion is very much part of the clinging to this notion of what a self is. Uh, how it inveigles us and creates these, the psychology of greed, aversion, and delusion, and all of its ramifications in our lives that we perceive so readily. Now, the Buddha is saying, in a sense, this is the deepest problem that we have, this clinging to the notion of, the, of something fixed in our experience, something that possesses identity, something that we feel, and it's almost a direct outcome, and I joked about it slightly earlier on, that it's a direct outcome of the teaching of, of Anicca. Nietzsche is saying everything, remember what I was saying? Everything is impermanent. There is not one thing, not one dimension of the phenomenal world that will not change. Hasn't it struck you as rather strange? That's me. I, often, I still reflect on this even now, that we kind of think we're exempt, you know, that there is something within us which doesn't change. Now, I think even if we reflect, i.e. investigate your own lives, you will see that you have gone through immense changes in your lives. You know, all of the partings, all of the things that have changed in your life, all the ways that your understandings have changed, the gaining of knowledge, the loss of knowledge, the gaining of experience, the forgetting of experience, nothing within your continuum has remained constant. In a sense, we do. What we love is the change. In fact, real... I mean, I actually put this another way, and perhaps you might who, like to ask me a question. Who do we love? The yeah. not-self of somebody else. Yeah. Perhaps you'd like to ask me a question about this later on, this evening, when we open up for question and answers, because a phrase I would use, actually, is that real love comes out of two sets of negotiated change. <laughs> yeah. So that's a relationship. That is what a relationship <laughs> is. Because when the moment we have the idea of fixity in the other, you're trying to make the other for you. Yeah. Now that might be in terms of security, both emotional and financial and all the things that we have, but it's about you. And so it's, um, you know, that person is for you as a fixed entity. And the moment change becomes so obvious, and this is not negotiated change, so obvious that they're no longer for you, that they're becoming for themselves, that's when love turns to its opposite. Opposite. And the sense, this isn't really love. This is something else. That's why. But perhaps you'll ask, you'd like to ask me a question about that this evening, because there are big implications, as Christina pointed out. There are huge implications to the whole of this teaching of anatta and relationships and things like love and things like compassion. You know? 
So this is not an empty teaching. This is not an intellectual teaching. And one of the things I often preface my talks when I'm speaking individually, and I'll say it here, is that nothing that the Buddha teaches is intellectual. It's all practical. You know, so this teaching is to make us investigate our experience in terms of what it means to be a self. You know, to investigate it, that feeling of fixity to see whether there is anything fixed in your continuum. Yeah. I just also feel like it's a really healthy human impulse to, um, to create a self and to enjoy it at the moments where that's available to us because it's going to change and enjoy what's available to us hmm. while it's there and really live it up <laughs> at those moments. Really <laughs> No, that's the point that's mm. not true. Yeah. That's yeah. the point that's actually I would investigate that yes. one. I mean, the truth is there's always being, whenever there is clinging, there is always the creating of a self. Now, on a good day, we create one. There's one created that we really like because we've created that around a good mood, yeah. you know, a, a good plan, a good fantasy. On a bad day, guess what? It's not like we can say, I think I have the one I had yesterday. You know, not if that momentum of clinging is there. Now, there is within the teaching, of course, no, no encouragement here towards a kind of blandness, mm. a life unlived. Hmm? In fact, the opposite. You know, there's the encouragement to live a life fully, to live a life well. So we have to ask ourselves, how would our life be shaped? if it's not shaped by clinging. What would shape our life if it's not shaped by clinging? And I think this is a desperately important question. You know, because we imagine that the only way that we could achieve something or, you know, do, do significant and meaningful things in the world and in our lives is if we've got a clinging self operating there. You know? Is it so? What would shape our lives if they were not shaped is it possible? Our lives can be shaped by, by love, by passion, by dedication to what is true. Is it possible that our lives can be shaped by kindness, by compassion, by altruism, by generosity? Is it possible our lives can be shaped by a, a, you know, an, embodied, an embodied understanding, an embodied mindfulness? You know, if you look really at, you know, you look at the, say, the story of the historical Buddha, are actually many of the people that we deeply admire in this life. You know, people who we admire for, you know, much of what they've done, but also the people we don't see, you know, who live, you know, live maybe remarkable lived lives. Um, you know, it's not like understanding has sent them into some kind of vacuum, limbo, suspended state. It's not necessarily shaped by clinging. So I think that's a good koan. How huh? would you distinguish between like intention and clinging? Intention's very different. Mm. Intention's very different because one of the kind of like areas of really wise intentionality is letting go. Letting go of clinging. But intention is necessary. Intention is the forerunner of every single word we speak, every thought, every act, every movement. 
there is intention there as a formative. So what are we doing? We're cultivating through investigation, through understanding, the intentions that serve the end of suffering, that are in the service of liberation. So remembering the context of this investigation. Remembering the context. And bearing in mind that what we're talking about here, this whole, you know, even just that question I, I asked, you know, what is a life not shaped by grasping? What does it look like? This is an experiential investigation. This is actually what we do in the practice. This is what we're looking at. This is what we're exploring. It, we're, and remembering here the whole thing of the bojangas, the whole thing about the seven factors, it's a cultivation. It's bringing into being everything that is kind of ennobling, wholesome, liberating, healing. But I'm, I'm going to actually, I think, I, I think I've said enough. <laughs> I think we need to move on. We, we need to I'm move really on. keeping an eye on the time yeah. here. But this, this business of, I mean, let, let's make this very clear as well, because I, I can say something on the back of what Christina said here, which is not self does not equate with no personality. Not self doesn't equate with being nobody. Not self means actually having a healthy self that moves out and engages in the world with others in a wholesome way. That is what it is. What we're talking about in the terms of the fixed nature of self, of grasping after self, self-clinging, self-grasping, self-gratification, all of these words that we can use are emanations of an unhealthy relationship with self, which actually in our societies are fostered and encouraged as being healthy a lot of the time. You know, to be an ego self is to be a healthy self, and this is not what the Buddha is saying. He's actually saying to drop this narcissistic, egoistic self and become a real self, a self that can operate with compassion, a self that can operate with kindness, and that comes about through lack of fixity of responsiveness. When it's an ego self, there's, no, there's very little responsiveness. There's lots of reaction, but very little responsiveness towards another. So please hear that you know, becoming, in other words, understanding the teaching of not-self, living that as an experience is actually holding this selfing. Let's get away from, the again, a noun into a verb this selfing becomes healthy. It becomes wholesome. And you begin to see that there isn't any underlying fixity or identity to it. And the image, perhaps, which represents this notion of what it means to be a... Even this is rather a static image, unfortunately, but to be the selfing process is something more like there is no one fixed piece of rope or string that runs through the whole piece of a rope. A rope and the strength of a rope is actually created by over intertwining tangles and overlapping elements. And the strength comes from that. There is not one piece that runs the whole way through it. To be a real self is to be, in a sense, that overlapping elements, not an identity without change. Identity means I can't possibly change. That's what it means. Yeah. And you hear this, you hear it captured in English. I so often joke about it back in England. In England we have, we, I don't know if you do it over here, but in England people would say, if you say to them, you know, you've got this particular habit, people go, well, that's the way I am. <laughs> Which means, can't change. <laughs> no possibility of change. 
what we're doing here is we're shifting the locus of, you know, partial, partially investigation is diagnostic. Mm. That's partially what investigation is, it's diagnostic. We're actually diagnosing, what is the cause of suffering here? You know, what is the cause of struggle? What is the cause of confusion? So it's diagnostic, and in the diagnostic element of it, we're actually shifting the locus or the source of what we call the dis-ease or dukkha. Mm. So we're not saying self is the cause of the disease or dukkha. We're actually saying, that distortion which manifests in grasping and clinging and fixing, this is the cause of the disease, the dukkha. Mm -hmm. So actually reshaping, you know, remember when we talked yesterday about mindfulness, part of it being about reshaping the narrative? Huh? Mm -hmm. We're restructuring the narrative. So actually saying, I, I was not, I'm not actually the problem, it's not a relief. Mm -hmm. But look, here, here is the source of the dis-ease, because we can actually really see that in our own experience so, so clearly, that every time there's that kind of glomming on to something, you know, with grasping, trying to fix, clinging, what is the immediate effect? Misery. <laughs> Immediately, instantaneously unhappy. Every time there's a loosening of that glomming, that clinging, that fixing, that grasping, What's the immediate effect of that? Ah, ease. Back in touch with the way things are. So that's the kind of diagnostic element that we're actually really applying moment to moment to our experience. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about liberating the moment. Eh? What are we liberating the moment from? Not from self. We're liberating the moment from distortion, from this, this grasping, this fixing, this, this closing down, around ideas. It's liberating it from fixity. This is the big <laughs> thing, which is why it's the direct outcome of a Nietzsche. It's the direct outcome of understanding impermanence. Actually, this is the good news. If you were a fixed, unchanging self, let's go home. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, there's no point. Right. Can I just interrupt because I'm going on to this later. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, I've gone on to it later on. Mm. But that, let me just respond to that because I think that is important. And even though you're going to go on and probably explore it in depth later on, but this healthy self is exactly what I was talking about. It's getting away from this idea of the fixed narcissistic self. 
the self which is self-indulgent, the self which is self-clinging, and that. And I think that's exactly what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about living healthy lives. This is personally, I mean, just very personally from my own past, you know, this is what got me attracted to Buddhism in the first place, was it was talking about a healthy, sane way of living, you know, where the, the self... Uh, in the way that we normally live, it isn't sitting there as a great big, I don't know, thing which is obfuscating your view of everything else. You know, and you kind of peek around it occasionally and see something, but most of all, all you see is yourself. You know, that to me was a sane way of living. I think the myth of Narcissus in the West is a very, very good mythology, actually, because what happens to Narcissus? He actually stares at his own image in the pool, falls in and drowns. And actually, that is the, that's the diagnosis of the unhealthy self that the Buddha really is bringing about. We're drowning in our self-clinging. We're drowning in our self, you know, in the wants and the desires and the aversions and everything else that emerge from that kind of self. What it means is to hold that self a lot more lightly. And actually, that's about enjoying life. It's not about walking through life with a kind of miserable expression on your face. I mean, as I often joke with groups, Buddhism isn't there to make you more miserable. <laughs> it's actually to uh, liberate you from the misery and so that we can move out and become really, really responsive in this world through these really important factors which actually make us move towards others, such as metta. You know, what's inscribed above the door here. Metta, the actual word in Pali, implies a, kind of, a, kind of, a sort of adhesiveness to others. All of the negative phases, such as patagar, anger, are actually driving us away from others. You know? So being that healthy, happy self, not looking for fixity, not looking for something which is absolutely stable, but living that moment-to-moment -moment awareness of change, including oneself, is a responsive self, a self which is really, truly engaged. Now, that takes quite a lot of, quite a task to move to that. Hence, there is a lot of diagnostic material about where we're screwing up. <laughs> Just one more, and then I must move on, otherwise I'm not going to get... But yeah. the question was about we don't have a fixed self, but there are tendencies, and that's a very important piece of investigation. It's a very important piece of investigation because that's exactly what you're trying to do. Identify through investigation what is wholesome and what is unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. So it's not absolute chaos because there is a degree that we have volitional control over. You know, that is the choices that have come up as a word again and again and again. Identifying where there is choice and where there isn't choice. Yeah. Identifying within the mind those states of mind which lead us into suffering states. And remember, it's not suffering states just for ourselves, the dukkering states. It's dukkha for everybody else because we like to spread it around. You know, we don't keep it to ourselves. You know, so it's not just for ourselves, it's for others as well. It's about relationship, and actually relationship is at the core of this. Being this fixed self actually puts us in a position pretty well of very little or no relationship with the world or with others, because it's distortion. Yeah. It's, a very, very, it's a great cognitive distortion. Yeah.
we are in love with ourselves. And let's just have this as a, self, a little bit of diagnostic before I move on and just cover the bit I want to cover today. The, some of you have heard me do this before, but forgive me if you have, which is you know, Jacques Lacan, the um, French psychoanalyst, had this wonderful paper that he wrote in the 1940s called The Mirror Stage, which was the myth of Narcissus, except it was done briefly on the back of some experimentation with apes, which was presenting an ape with a mirror. And what happens when you present an ape with a mirror? An ape goes like this. And when it sees there's nothing behind it, it loses all interest. What happens with human beings? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> I, just very, very briefly, I just, because I really want John to go on to, I think you, what you're pointing out here is desperately important because mm. our idea of self, John alluded to it earlier, that our idea of notion of fixed self is often formed around moods, but those moods are often manifestations of tendencies. Mm. And what, our tend what makes something a tendency, we repeat it over and over again. And it's that very repetition that often comes with the idea of I am, you know, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm depressed. So what we are really doing here, and this is a whole other discussion, it is actually we are, as we've said, cultivating inclinations of heart and mind that actually contribute to suffering and do their own work, which is very important. The cultivation of the wholesome does its own work of releasing the unskillful and the confusing. And so therefore the Buddha is really inviting us to investigate what this is to be a self. And one of the chief, and again this is part of the investigation of the teaching, but it's a tool for investigating our own mental and physical continuum is to investigate it through the khandhas, through the aggregates. Because he's saying that any meaningful talk of what it means to be a self has to imply something like the khandhas. It doesn't mean it has to be identical with this, but this is the first stab, if you like, of trying to see what it means to call ourselves a self at all. And to undermine the grasping of something fixed. So, I'm just going to do this very briefly because we haven't got a lot of time now. But, but for example, to be anything approaching a self, well, he's saying it's got to have a num minimal number of factors, which are five. The first one is called rupa, which is form. Now, we would all, I think, pretty well appreciate that, that to, to even you know, call ourselves a self at all in this world, then we're going to have to have a, some kind of physical form. In Buddhism, the mind is an embodied mind. You know, it's not a, a mind which is free-floating. It's actually based on a physical process as well. So we are a physical form. Yet, he's saying, of course, does physical form on its own qualify for being a self? I think we're in, into, into pretty major dukkha if we think it is going to be ourself, because it changes. You know? We don't remain the same. You know, I think Christina referred to looking in the mirror tells you that most days. But this is changing. You can't fix yourself. It's not under our control, no matter how well we live, to remain fixed physically at one period of time. We might go through all of the procedures and everything else to try and fix it, but ultimately you're onto a loser. You know? 
<laughs> this physical form is going to, unfortunately, because it's dependent on causes and conditions, decline, age, and eventually pass away completely. You know, it's dependent. It's not under our control. If we grasp after it, you know, then we are into dukkha. It's called the uh, one, of, one of the phrases is used about the aggregates are aggregates of grasping. We can grasp after them, and the immediate feeling tone that will arise on grasping after this as being self is dukkha. That's what's going to happen. So if I'm trying to desperately, 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 you know, um, cling to this physical form as being myself and somehow representing myself then dukkha is going to be the immediate arising upon that. The second term, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with anyway, is Vedana. That we experience sensations. The translation of this, is a very accurate translation, is feeling. But unfortunately people always get emotional about it. And feeling isn't emotion in this. Feeling is just the mere sensation of something arising. So, hence the reason why in Vipassana meditation, and particularly in some schools of Vipassana, the intense concentration on looking at the arising of feeling, bodily feeling and mental feeling. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You know? Sukha, dukkha, asukha, adukkha. Domanasa, somanasa, domanasa, asomanasa. You know, these phrases are used to say pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant in both mental and physical states. This is the full range, and it's not under our control. Actually, things that we experience as a pleasant sensation, upon some further occasion in life, we might experience as unpleasant. You know, usually to the annoyance of other people, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> You know, these things are occurring and we have very little control over them. We, if we looked back over our lives and charted the changes in the feelings towards, say, food and drink, for example, that we've undergone over the course of our lifetime, you will find many, many changes. Things that we found pleasant, we will now find neither or unpleasant. Things that we found unpleasant, we might find pleasant or neither. And so on and so forth. So there's very little control, if any under this. So if we grasp after feeling as being ourself, well again, we're not going to um, come away with any good feelings about it because it's going to be dukkha again, trying to stabilize what is unstabilizable because feeling arises as does all of the physical processes on causes and conditions. The causes and conditions change, then the experience will change, the phenomena will change. The third dimension is one that we spoke about yesterday, so I won't go into too much detail about, but this one of sanya. Sanya, to know. The technical definition of sanya, for those who want to write it down or just hear it, is to mark an object for recognition. Yeah, that's what we do. This is the process of perception. We go through life marking objects so that we can recognize them again. This is what we do. This is how we build up our repertoire of knowledge, even just practical knowledge about the world, let alone intellectual knowledge about the world. We go through marking it. How do we mark it? Language. So language is an enormous part, the language capability that we have. A lot of later Buddhist thought goes on to a lot of uh, investigation of language and linguistic processes 
and how these um, impact on our perceptions. But so language is implicated. The other thing that I mentioned very, very strongly yesterday was memory. To use language, I've got to remember how I've marked the object. You know, to see that wood and then differentiate the trees because I've suddenly now got all the names for the different trees rather than just wood. You know, I've got to remember how to re apply the particular term to that. Um, life is a process of remembering and forgetting. You know, that is what it is. You know, and actually, over the course of our life, it's very little under our control, is it? You know, that moment when you want to give somebody the name of something. <laughs> I've had that one, when it breaks down. <laughs> you know? um, so that's going on as well. This process of forgetting as well as remembering. And of course, of course in, in terms of the disaster type scenarios, we forget progressively as we get older. You know? And that's you know, excluding any degenerative brain illnesses. There's a process of gradual falling away of a lot of the things that we remembered. Yeah. Um, so life could be seen as a process of building up memory from childhood, going all the way and then going into decline, and there's very little that we can do about most of it at all. Self, and I won't go into this yet again, but self, of course, is about remembering. Yeah. The whole notion of self is based on memory. Yeah. Who I was 10 years ago, who I was 20 years ago, you know, who I was yesterday. You know, I indicated yesterday that this, of course, this is very, very partial. You know, we build up different images of ourselves through the different memories we have. You know, so we've got multiple selves, really, not just one self. Any sense of identity is based on that continuity of memory but built out of spasmodic episodes of remembrance. Now, just one thing to point out about that, of course, and you can see the, how much self is based on memory with degenerative brain illnesses, um, because when people start to lose short-term and eventually long-term memory, they do not know who they are. Now, that is not, and this is why I say this is, that is becoming no self. <laughs> That is not being not-self, as the Buddha is indicating, living it. You know? you know, losing all of that capacity is to lose the capacity to know who you are at all. Now, that is not what the Buddha is recommending us to do. You know, so it's understanding, again, this business of not-self and how it's implicated in memory and living that as being something which is not fixed. The fourth dimension to this something called sankharas. Volitional formations, sometimes wholesome, sometimes unwholesome. In sankharic existence, a lot of them are unwholesome. This is the karmic repository, if you like. Um, just think about in terms of your life within this lifetime, let alone yeah, the traditional Buddhist view of previous lifetimes. But in this lifetime, you have spent your life engaged in actions since you were born, of thought, word, and deed. You know, some of those have become ingrained habits. You know, they are the neural pathways around the ruts down which much of our thinking and much of our behavior run. You know, some of them will be wholesome, and some of them will be extremely unwholesome. So the initial phase of investigation is to then look at what are unwholesome and 
and wholesome habits in our lives to cultivate the one and gradually diminish the other. However, sankharas themselves are not not us. Habits are not us because they can always change. We can always develop them. This is why they're volitional. They are what's called chetana. They are volitional habits. This is karma. And karma, let me just say this as a point here, the Buddha does not say everything is karma. What happens to us? I just want to say it at this point because it's often a misconception. It's a conception that comes up in later Buddhism, but it certainly isn't there in the original Buddha's teaching. He makes a joke of it, actually, when somebody asks him that. Somebody asks him, is everything... All these teachers, somebody comes up and says, all these teachers around are saying that everything that occurs to you in your life is karma. Do you say this? And the Buddha says, no, that is not what I say. What I say is that some things that happen to you are the result of bile. (laughs) Some things that happen to you are the result of phlegm. (laughs) And he gives a whole list. And right at the bottom, he says, some things that happen to you are the result of what you do. So basically, there's a division. There's karma and there's stuff happening. (laughs) So sankharas is very much about what we do and the way that we sediment them down. And I could say a lot more about this because it's a huge link in the chain of dependent origination. Uh, But very briefly here, sankharas are not self. Then finally, I think we'll just about get there for the time. Finally, there is vinyana. Vinyana, as you can see, it has this nya bit in it, which I indicated yesterday for those who are interested in the language. Um, so it indicates knowing. Vinyana's job is to know. That is its job. It's consciousness. Consciousness's job is to know something. Consciousness is not a thing. It's a process. All of these are processes. The self or selfing is a verb. Yeah. It's not thing. It's not identity. It's not something unchanging. Consciousness is also, as I tried to indicate yesterday, something that has to have an object to be. Consciousness and object arise together. An object here doesn't have to be physical objects, such as a chair or a table. It can be a thought, a wish, a hope, a fear, an anxiety. All of these are objects. It's like saying, can you be conscious without being conscious of something? The Buddha clearly answers, no. You are always conscious of something. So consciousness is a dependent arising, arising particularly in this schema, dependent on all of the other faculties, all of the other processes which are going on. So what we call self, atta, to use the Pali term, is actually predicated on that lot. Which bit is you? Well, I wouldn't particularly want to say consciousness is me if it's nothing, (laughs) because it's just arising in relationship to an object. Sankara is, well, I wouldn't particularly want to identify myself with being all my habits, because they change. So where's the stability in that? Sanya is changing because the objects of perception are changing continuously. Memory is slipping in and out. I forget words. I 
you know, my world changes according to what I can remember. Vedana and sensation is changing and my body is changing as well. And if I grasp after any of them, I'm in for suffering. I'm in for dukkha out of that. So the Buddha is saying, live this self as process, not as thing. Stop grasping after it because there is no thing to grasp after. Self is empty of intrinsic existence. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it doesn't have any intrinsicality to it. You know, it is a dependent arising. It arises and causes conditions. And this is the most basic way of looking at it. In the Abhidharma material, which is part of the canon, even this is broken down even further. Much, much further. You know, so Rupa will consist of you know, 28 different faculties. Um, all of this will be broken down into 52. You know, and then there's Nibbana <laughs> as well above it. You know, so it's broken down even further because if you want to grasp after this. So the investigation is to investigate these in function. Now, I'll just finish off on this. Um, again, some of you might have heard this, but in my early training, I had to go through um, with one of the teachers I was training with who was one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. And we went through weeks and weeks and weeks of saying, is my big toe myself? Are my hair follicles myself? You know, is this particular sensation myself? Is this particular perception myself? And I won't go into it all, but we went through some weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> you know, it was just so tedious. And uh, I, I kind of got really irritated by it. It was the early days. I was very irritated and went up to him and said, hey, why are we doing this? And he goes, well, you know, it's a bit like when you lose your purse or your wallet. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, well, you know what happens when you lose your purse and your wallet? What do you do? You, he said, you look in every possible place it might be until you're convinced yourself you've lost it. <laughs> and this is what we do. That is the investigation. <laughs> what you're convincing yourself is in this investigation, and this is all part of Dhamma Vichaya, and I want to say something more about this this evening. What you're convincing yourself is that the self doesn't exist in the way that you think it exists. Yeah. Not, please, please, I do make this plea that Christina made, not that you don't possess a self. That's dangerous, for, particularly for people who have a fragile sense of themselves anyway. Extremely dangerous. Um, this is to convince yourself that you do not possess it in this fixed, solid manner. And that is all. This is the root of grasping. This is the root of clinging. It's also the root of, it's also held properly the root of correct engagement. If we understand this process, this process is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with being a self held properly. Yeah? It's very, very nihilistic if we drop into this thing of being no self. It's called it Uchedavada in Pali, you know, which is the destruction, the annihilation of a self. We're actually trying to annihilate in that self and all these destructive behaviors that we see enacted um, in contemporary life are actually all aimed at destroying something that doesn't really exist in the way that they think it exists. Yeah. So much of those destructive 
behaviours we see in contemporary society from you know, extreme drug abuse and alcohol abuse to cutting and all of these things are aimed at destroying something or attempting to destroy all of the eating disorders, are trying to get rid of something which does not really exist in the way that the person believes it to exist. Yeah. Trying to cut off what is not there, literally. Well, I've overrun my time. <laughs> now, we will, I'm sure you need a little movement too. But we haven't finished, um, <laughs> have we? No. <laughs> no, no, we haven't finished this, this particular factor. So we continue this evening. But at the moment, we can take, uh, I think, um, half an hour walking. Mm -hmm. We could take a half an hour walking if we come back at um, 10 to 12. We'll have a sitting before lunch. And again, really an encouragement to use the formal practice periods. So the bell ringer for this period, you ring the bell, please, five, just five minutes later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.